crime for which he was going to be crucified. Well, the Lord Jesus had been beaten. He'd been up all night long. He had been abused in the, in the ecclesiastical trials. He had been whipped already once by Pilate's soldiers. And then when the trials were all over, he was whipped once again. He was bleeding. He was tired. He was exhausted. And so on the way north, as he was moving there, he collapsed. He fell down. And we would call it accident. The press scimitar would call it an accident. And the commercial appeal would call it an accident. And many of our religious leaders would call it an accident. The liberals would. The Bible calls it providence. Within the providence of God, there was a stranger hustling north out of that city to get on back home. He had no time to lose. Simon was his name. And the Roman soldiers, as was custom, Mary, the Roman soldiers waylaid this man, Simon. They conscripted him. And they made him bear that crossbar. He was disgruntled, but when you got some swords pointed uh, at your neck, why, you can be a lot disgruntled and still go ahead and do whatever they ask you to do. So they got Simon and made him bear the crossbar of Jesus out to the place that he was crucified. He did it, of course, involuntarily. Now, years later, years later, we read in Romans chapter 16 of two sons, leaders in the church at Rome, were sons of Simon of Cyrene. This man, you see, was led to faith. In the providence of God, something that was very distasteful to him, something that he didn't like to do and want to do, something that probably he hated to do because he was operating on schedule. That something turned him around. And while he was a passive observer in this whole the Holy Spirit moved upon his heart, and somehow, we're not told how, this man, Simon, was brought to faith in Jesus Christ, and his family was brought to faith in Christ, and his two sons became leaders in the church. What does the Bible say? Genesis 50, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for. We know that all things work, not are, but work together for good. What a wonderful illustration of the providence of God. Then the third thing we find, we find this in Luke chapter 23, and we're not going to have time to turn there. You'll have to look at it later. Luke chapter 23, we find that several women are walking alongside the Lord Jesus, and they're crying. They're weeping. They love Jesus. They loved him with a proper sort of love and adoration. They loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were weeping because of what was happening to Christ. And the Lord Jesus stopped. And he said, don't weep for me. Stop weeping for me. Weep not for me. Weep for all these upon the, whom the judgment of God will one day fall, as it did in 70 A.D., when the Romans 
crucified thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews. So said Jesus, don't weep for me. Weep for those who reject me and upon whom the judgment of God is going to fall. You know, that's a good question. How do you view the cross of Christ? Jesus said, don't view it as a tragedy. View it as a victory. Don't weep for me. Weep for those who are crucifying me. Weep for those upon whom the judgment of God will one day fall. Pity them. Weep for them. Because our God is a consuming fire. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a good question to ask yourself, my friend. How do you view the cross? Of Jesus Christ as a tragedy or as a triumph as a victory or as a defeat well as a matter of fact both both man's tragedy but God's victory man's worst tragedy in human history but God's greatest victory in human history but I dare say when we come to Easter time you're not going to read it that way in the newspapers and magazines unless you read the article that's reprinted every year at Christmas time, written by the late fourth editor of the Commercial Appeal. Now, he seemed to have an insight into it which most newspaper columnists do not have and most magazines do not have. Weep not for me. Don't weep. Weep for those upon whom the judgment of God will fall. It's not Jesus on trial. It's the soldier and the Sanhedrin and you and I who are on trial. So the Lord said, don't weep for me. Then he went on to say something that's very strange. He said, if they do this in the green tree, what will they do in the dry tree? Now, what does that mean? Hmm? What does that mean? Well, I'll let you study and find out what that means. <laughs> I do this to the students, you know. I say you don't want me to do all the work. That's a very strange prophet. You study that and find out what does that mean. If they do this in the green tree, what will they do in the dry? Then the fourth thing we have is that the two thieves marched with the Lord Jesus. That's given to us in Luke chapter 23, verse 32. The two thieves uh, are also involved in this journey from the city of Jerusalem to the outskirts of the city and to the place where they are crucified. Finally, finally, they arrive at Golgotha. Finally, they arrive at Golgotha. Look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 33. Matthew chapter 27, verse 33. says in 27, 33, when they were coming to a place called, what is it? Yeah, not Golgotha, it's Golgotha. A place called Golgotha. That is to say, a place of the skull. And here at Golgotha, he was crucified. Now, there are three terms, you know, that are used of the, of the cross. Sometimes it's referred to as Golgotha. 
Sometimes it's referred to as the place of the skull, which is the translation. Sometimes it's referred to as uh, Calvary. They all mean essentially the same thing. Golgotha is the Aramaic word for skull. The uh, Greek word um, that's translated skull in Matthew 27:34 is uh, K-R-A-N-I-U-M, or O-M. And you know what we get from that, cranium, cranium. And that's a Greek word for skull, and that's the word that's translated here by the word skull. Golgotha is the Aramaic word, just as Cephas is one word, and Peter is another word. They mean the same. Messiah is the Hebrew. Christ is the Greek. They're exactly the same. Uh, you know, I didn't know it for years and years that I-A-N was the same as John. I thought to myself, why would anybody want to be called Iron? All the English preachers that came over to America, they're all named Iron or Eon, Eon. I said, what would they want to be named Eon? Well, I found out that they said, what do they want to be named John for? Why not call him Eon? And then I found out W-J-U-A-N referenced the same thing. They cross over languages. Golgotha is Aramaic, means skull. Cranium, skull. And Calvary comes from C-A-L-V-A, which means bald. And, and then you add the... Uh, R-A to it, Calvara, and means skull. So Calvary means skull, Golgotha means skull, and Cranium, skull. Now, the question always arises, why was this called the skull? Nothing in the Bible to indicate why it was called the place of the skull. Now, everybody that goes to Palestine and comes back says, well, it looks like a skull. Well, that probably looked like a skull before they got there. When they got there, it looked like it, see. Nobody knows why, and the Bible doesn't tell us why. Uh, some people say it's called the place of skull because uh, when it was first located there, there were a lot of skulls around it. Others say that Adam was buried. The old ancient tradition is that Adam was buried there. So it was called the place of the skull. Some say it looks like a skull. Well, it may look like a skull to some, not to us. The Bible simply doesn't tell us why. And if the Bible doesn't tell us why, then we ought not to try to make out some reason why it's called the place of the skull. We simply don't know, except it's an interesting thing, that, that God climbed right up on the top of the human intellect. It's called the things of God fully that God got up on top of the human intellect, the skull, and put their cloth, and the cloth, the preaching of the cloth is to them that perish, what? Foolishly. God put it on the top of the skull, you see. Empty, of course. <laughs> but still the place of the skull. Why, we don't know. Then the soldiers offered Matthew chapter 27, verse 34. They gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. When he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. Now, this is common. They gave it to him to stupefy. It was kind of a drug to negate the pain. When the Lord tasted it, he said no. He spat it out. He refused it because he wanted to drink the last bitter dreg of his suffering without any uh, abatement.
of that suffering. He wanted to suffer unabated for us at Calvary. He wanted to endure the agonies of the cross in the full possession of his faculties. And so he refused any drug that would abated those physical and emotional sufferings which he was going to undergo. Later on, he says, I thirst. Later on, he does. But that's when his work is finished. That's after he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But not now. Now we come to the second thing, and that's the crucifixion itself. The crucifixion of Christ. John chapter 19, verse 18, and in other places. The crucifixion itself. Let's look, we don't need to turn to John. Just keep in Matthew. Matthew chapter 27, 35. And they crucified him. Now you know the word crucify and the word C-R-U-X, crux, and the word C-R-O-S-S all come from the same root. To crucify means they put him on the cross. Now, crucifixion was not a Jewish mode of punishment. Crucifixion was a Roman mode of punishment. The Romans got it from the Carthaginians. Carthage was a great city in North Africa. And you remember, if you remember your Roman history, which is a little indistinct in my mind, but if my memory serves me right, Carthage fell to Rome in um, 146 B.C. Carthago de Lenda F., the Roman senator, got up. And all the meetings, Carthago de Lenda F., Carthage must be destroyed. Carthage and Rome, the two chief cities vying for leadership of the Mediterranean, just as we are vying with the Russians for that part of the... Um, of the globe today and a little further east. Carthage was finally destroyed, 142-146 B.C. Well, the Carthaginians crucified. Why did they get it? Well, Carthage was settled by the Phoenicians, and the Phoenicians picked it up from the Assyrians. And back 800-900 B.C., the Assyrians crucified their adversaries. When they took a man in battle, they crucify him. The Assyrians were masters at torture. And they crucified their enemies. And the Phoenicians picked it up, and the Phoenicians settled Carthage, and the Romans got it from the Carthaginians. And by the way, may I put it in a Shakespearean aside, when that curse in Genesis chapter 9 is placed upon Canaan, not upon Ham, but upon Canaan, when that's placed on Canaan, that was fulfilled, number one, when Joshua went up into the land and made the Canaanites hewers of wood and drawers of water. It was fulfilled, number two, when the Persians, Japhethites, conquered the Babylonians. The Babylonians go back to Nimrod and descended to Canaan. And third, 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 that prophecy was fulfilled when Carthage was destroyed because Carthage was founded by the Phoenicians and they were Canaanites 
and the Romans were Japhethites. And Carthage was defeated, destroyed. Carthage, Phoenicians, Canaanites by the Japhethite Romans. And that was the third time it was fulfilled. It has nothing to do with a racial situation uh, today or a hundred years ago. That prophecy was all fulfilled, and it was fulfilled finally and ultimately when Carthage was destroyed, 140, 42, 146 B.C., whatever that date may be. My memory slips me right now. I have a hard time in memory on dates and on my wife's birthday. <laughs> I'm always in the doghouse there. And uh, so I have my daughter to remind me and the two boys to remind me, and uh, I usually end up forgetting it anyway. But uh, how did we get on this? I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the way we got on it was we were talking about crucifixion. The Romans picked it up from the Carthaginians. It was a very disgraceful mode of execution. The Romans reserved it for the worst of criminals. A Roman citizen could not be crucified. Paul was beheaded. Roman citizen could not be crucified. It was unlawful, illegal. And it was reserved for only the worst of criminals. Crucifixion reserved for only the worst of criminals. So you can see what they thought about Jesus when they crucified him. It was very embarrassing to hang there almost naked, if not naked. An open sight any who passed by. And there was a highway that went right by the place where the three of them, including Jesus, were crucified. I don't need to say that it was a very painful thing. They would take a man and uh, put the crossbar down and uh, they would pull the man back and either tie his hands or nail him. To Jesus, they nailed him to the crossbar. And then they fixed that crossbar to the upright, and then having dug a hole, they took the whole thing, lifted it up, and stomped it into the hole. And of course, that would also tear the flesh. They had kind of a leather hump that fitted right under the crotch, or else the man's hands would have torn entirely out of the nail. So that provided a little bit of relief. But they nailed the feet, and they nailed the hands to the crossbar and to the feet. Now, what kind of a cross was it? Well, probably um, the old form of a Latin cross. You know, there are several crosses, the straight eye. There's the, there is the normal one that we visualize, and that's in the form of a T. And that's probably what it was like. Um, Sometimes, if I can locate everything that I need here to do it, sometimes a cross is like this, visualized like this. Sometimes a cross is visualized like this, a towel, just a T. Sometimes it's visualized like this. Sometimes it's visualized like this, and sometimes a St. Andrew's cross like this. This is the, the Latin cross, and that's probably what it was like although it really doesn't make that much difference, but it probably took that form that we uh, normally see it in art and in literature, although sometimes it's found differently in art 
and in literature. And so Jesus is crucified, and it's important, I think, to observe, because we get it in art that he hung six, eight, ten feet up in the air. That is his feet. When, as a matter of fact, the feet of the crucified were only a foot and a half, 18 to 24 inches above the ground. And if you were stood tall or stood on a box, you could look right into the eyes of the crucified person. It made it all the more shameful. Now, what brought about death and crucifixion? Both the circulation and the respiration were deeply affected. And a man simply died. Died from circulatory and respiratory difficulties. Now, there's an old theory proposed first by a medical doctor that Jesus died of a broken, ruptured heart. I don't get into those because I think that's speculation. I think we ought to be agnostic with the Bible is agnostic with silent. And the Bible is silent. It just simply tells us that Jesus died. It doesn't tell us precisely the mode of his death. And after all, I think it's important to remember, are you listening? That unlike everybody else, Jesus Christ gave up his life. I don't. Jesus did. Jesus dismissed. The Bible says that he lifted his head up so that when he died, he was still in possession of the full strength of his faculties. He lifted up his head. He lifted up his head. said, Father, into thy hands I commend my human spirit, my soul. When he said that, he died. So what did he die of? He died voluntarily. He dismissed it. Death is the separation of the soul from the body. Jesus dismissed his soul. What did the Lord Jesus say in John chapter 10? I have power. Nobody takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up, which means that people are conscious between death and resurrection. I have power to lay it down, and between death and resurrection... I have power, authority to take it up, conscious between death and resurrection. And Jesus gave up. So I'm not worried about the precise physical mode of the death of Jesus, and the Bible is silent about it. And I've got a couple of books in my library. They're written explicitly, pages after pages, dealing with that. And I think, personally, it's a waste of time. I think it's a waste of time. The books were given to me. <laughs> I didn't buy them, see. Because that, after all, is not where the importance of the death of Jesus is really involved. Jesus gave up his life. He dismissed his spirit. And the Bible, unlike art and unlike literature, the Bible makes very little of the physical aspects of Christ's death. May I say that again? Well, I will anyway. <laughs> the Bible, unlike art and literature and music and poetry, the Bible makes very little of the physical aspects of the death of Jesus. When you stop to think about it, what does the Bible tell you about the physical aspects of the death of Jesus? The most that the Bible tells us is found over in Isaiah 52 and 53. His visage 
was marred more than any other man. But apart from that, what does it tell you about the suffering? What does it tell you about the contortions of his face? What does it tell you about the, tie, the blood streaming from his body? There is a holy restraint in the Bible on the physical aspect. And when you come to the epistles, they're virtually silent. Do you know why, my friend? If you know why, then you are down the road in theology. The reason why is that I'm not saved by the physical suffering of Christ. I'm not saved by what men did to Jesus. I'm saved by what God did to Jesus. I'm not saved by the nails in his hands and the sword in his side. Those are symbols of the deeper. I'm saved by that mighty transaction that went on between the Father and the Son, between God the Judge and God the Savior, the same. God the Judge and God the Savior the same. And those three hours of darkness, that's what saves us, not the physical agony. Although the physical agony was real. See, if it was the physical agony that saved me, there have been a lot, there have been thousands of martyrs in human history that have died. Similar deaths, haven't they? There have been thousands of men who have been crucified. There are thousands of men who have been tortured to death. If all that was involved was the physical agony of Jesus, then Jesus would simply be a martyr to a good cause. But he's not. He's not a martyr to a good cause. He's a savior. What makes him a savior is not what men did to Jesus, not the physical agony. Though that's real. That's real. But what makes him a savior is what he underwent when all the billows of God's wrath judges flowed over Jesus and he bore it in my place and in your place and Jesus endured all the hell of all men in our behalf bearing shame and scoffing you in my place condemned he stood that's the real point the time of the crucifixion what time well, look at Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Let's begin at verse 24. Mark 15, verse 24. Mark 15, 24. When they had crucified him, and they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was what time? Third hour. Third hour. Nine o'clock in the morning. It was the third hour, and they crucified him. The superscription was written. So they crucified him in the third hour. Now take your Bible and look at verse 32. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the, what's that hour? Sixth hour. When the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over all the land until what hour? Ninth hour. That's three o'clock in the afternoon. 
at the ninth hour, just as the ninth hour was almost over, Jesus cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So here's the time frame of the crucifixion. He was crucified about nine o'clock in the morning. That is the third hour. At 12 o'clock, darkness fell over all the land. That is over all of Palestine, a supernatural darkness. And that darkness lasted for how long? Three hours, from 12 noon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And then that darkness lifted about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And by 4 o'clock, he was probably dead. In the first three hours, he uttered three great sayings. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And third, woman, behold thy son, son, behold thy mother. Three saints. Then darkness fell. And near the end of the period of darkness, the fourth word from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The darkness lifted. The sun came out again. Then three, quickly, three great saints from the cross. Number five, what was it? I serve. Number six, it is finished. Number seven, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he died 345, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Now I put it up here. And I put it that way so you could read backwards. I watch some of you read your Bible. I watch you. I look out there, you got the Bible upside down, so I figured I'd put it that way. There is, uh, it briefly and uh, uh, briefly, rather roughly, briefly, concisely, is the chronology of the death of Christ. He was crucified the third hour. That's Mark 15, 25. He was crucified the third hour, which is 9 o'clock in the morning, 9 a.m. From 9 to 12, the sun shone. And during those three hours, uh, he made those three great statements. Number one, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's number one. Number two, to the dying thief, he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He said, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And then looking out over the cross, he saw his mother Mary. And he knew that she'd be alone. So he said, son, take her to a daycare center. <laughs> now, what did he say? Son, take her into your home. Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. And when those three sayings were said, then the darkness fell. At 12 o'clock noon, the sixth hour, Mark 15, verse 23, the sixth hour. And darkness was upon the land from 12 o'clock noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And just as that darkness was starting to lift, the Lord Jesus cried out that great cry of agony. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then the darkness lifted, the sun came out once again, 
and three more statements were made. This, my God, is the number four statement. Number five, I thirst, and they gave him something to drink. Number six, it is finished. Number six, it is finished. And then the last statement, as he died, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And the Lord Jesus commended his spirit or his soul unto God the Father, and he died. And I suppose that was about between 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, that's the basic outline, I think, of the crucifixion. Now, I'll leave that on the, on the plaque for a minute, and I'm going to move along so that we can get through. All right, now let's look, first of all, at the first three hours. First three hours. First of all, there was a superscription that they placed on him. They, first three hours from 9 to 12 a.m., given to us in Mark chapter 15, verse 25. They put a superscription on it, read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. They was usual to place a placard on the cross indicating the crime of the man, and they did so here. They put it in Aramaic, and they put it in Greek, and they put it in Latin, three languages. And there's some problem here because one reads one way and one reads the other. If we could get back there, we'd find there's no problem whatsoever. One may have translated from the Aramaic. One may have translated it from the Latin. Anyway, the sign was read by many people. The Jews remonstrated. They said, don't say, this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Say, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate said, what I have written, I've written. I'm not going to change it. Then after that came the first saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, I wish I had time to take these up. I've preached uh, on Easter series from time to time and taken up those seven sayings. I'm sure you've heard all seven of them one time or the other in a series. Matter of fact, in two occasions in the last 20 years, I've taken up a series over the radio. One Sunday morning, each one of the seven Sunday mornings devoted to one of these seven saints. Here's the first one. Father, forgive them. Forgive them, the soldiers. Pilate, Herod, all these out here. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, that's not a blanket pardon of sin. He's not setting aside justice. And Jesus certainly is not saying that ignorance is excusable. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, Father, I am dying for all sin, and my crucifixion is part of that all sin. So if they will receive me as Savior, and if they will receive your gifts, then forgive them. It wasn't a blanket pardon. He's saying, are you following me while you're writing that thing down? He's saying, Father, I'm dying for how much sin? All sin. That includes my crucifixion. Now, these here repent of their sin and trust me, then, Father, forgive them. Ignorance is no excuse. They palliate it some, but will not excuse it. And it teaches us that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. Then in John chapter 19, we find that the soldiers gambled for the garments of Christ. That was common. That was the perquisite of the soldiers. And they gambled for the garments. The outer, the inner, 
The outer garment was divided into four parts, but the inner garment was seamless, so they gambled for that inner garment, and a prophecy was fulfilled. Then we come to the second great sale. Two of the thieves were mocking, both mocked Jesus. After both had mocked Jesus for a little while, one of them stopped and said, Wait a minute, wait a minute. We receive justly for what we do. We're being punished and punished rightly and properly so. But this man has done nothing amiss. This man's innocent. He's done nothing amiss. We are being crucified properly. This man has done nothing amiss. Apparently the man had heard of Jesus. He didn't know a whole lot about the gospel, but he apparently had heard Jesus preach. He knew something of the gospel. He knew something of the message of Christ. So he turned to the Jesus and he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus saw a true, a true act of faith. See, it's not the strength of my faith that saves me. It's the object of my faith. Two men in the boat. One is very confident the boat will carry him to safety. The other is scared stiff. Which of the two men gets to the island safely? Both of them. Because they're in the boat. It's not the strength of the faith that saves me. It's the object. This man, though his faith is weak. Not somewhere else, today, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Which tells us first that what makes heaven heaven is the presence of Christ. Not today shalt thou walk on the golden street, but today shalt thou be with me. And tells us secondly that when a soul leaves the body, when a person dies and the soul leaves the body, that soul goes immediately into the presence of God. That soul doesn't get up, by the way, on the top of the ceiling and hover around there or go down a long tunnel, you know, and come on back and get in the body once again. Not at all. The Bible says to depart and to be with Christ. And the moment the soul leaves the body, that's it. That's it. And the soul goes to be with Christ. Today shalt thou be with me, said he in paradise. And then he looked out on his mother, and he saw John, and he made provision for his mother. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Jesus is suffering. He's in deep agony. Yet despite the fact he's in deep agony, he sees his mother, and he takes care of his mother. What a beautiful thing. So he looks down to his mother, and he says to John, the man that wrote the book, he said, Mother, behold your son. And then he said, John, John, behold your mother. And what he was doing was really two things. Number one, he was separating himself from her. Up till now, it's mother and son. Now, that's separated. From now on, it's not going to be mother and son. It's going to be sinner and Savior. And Mary 
was a sinner and needed a Savior, just as you and I are sinners and need the Savior. And he was making that known to her at that point. And then the second thing that we observe here is the sympathy that Jesus had. Even the hour of his agony, he was thinking of others, and especially was thinking of his mother. And may I say, by the way, without laboring the point, this has something to say, does it not, about the responsibility of children toward their parents. Jesus, in his last hours in his agony, took time to place his mother in the care of someone else, the care of the Apostle John. Then we come to the three hours of darkness. Let's take our Bibles and turn over to Luke chapter 23, quickly. Luke chapter 23. We read in Luke chapter 23, verse 44 and 45, these words. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. So there was a three-hour darkness. Here's the first of the six miracles that take place around Calvary. I've got a book in my library. Matter of fact, I've got two copies of it called The Six Miracles of Calvary, written by old Bishop Nicholson. When I got it, it cost 25 cents. You'd have to pay $1.39 for it now. But it's worth $1.39. It's a magnificent book. Six Miracles of Calvary. And the first miracle Bishop Nicholson speaks about is this miracle of the supernatural darkness. It was supernatural. It wasn't an eclipse. It was Passover season, for one thing. Another thing, it lasted for three hours. So it was not an eclipse. It probably covered the whole area of Palestine, and it was a supernatural darkness. And it symbolized the awful, inconceivable sufferings of Christ in bearing God's wrath upon sin. And I happen to believe that it was in those three hours that God poured out in those three hours all the judgment, all the guilt, all the penal consequences of sin upon his son. Those three hours. And because God in those three hours poured out the penal consequences of the sin of the world upon his son in those three hours, God drew a curtain on the sun and it was dark so that men could not see. The outer circumstances symbolize the inner transaction. When you look here, you know that's often true in the Bible. God often makes the outer circumstances symbolize the inner circumstances. So when Adam was alienated from God, fell into sin, and his heart and life became raging with passion and lust. God expelled him from the garden out to the place where nature was now cursed. And the tiger was against the lamb, and the lamb against the tiger. And nature was cursed and ravaged by passion. So that the outward circumstances would remind Adam 
of his inner spiritual state, which the curse on nature ought to remind us today. When the tornado sweeps, then I should think of the tornado sin and its devastations in my life and the lives of others. And the outer circumstances reflect the inner. So while Jesus inwardly was bearing the sin of the world, the outer circumstances were altered and darkness fell upon him. Near the end of those three hours of darkness came that great cry of agony. My God, my God, Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabbathan, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Signifying the awful abandonment of our Savior as he bore the penal consequences of sin in your behalf and in my behalf. This teaches us the inflexible justice of God, the inflexible justice of God, that even his own son, absolutely pure and sinful, since he was bearing the sin of the world, must be abandoned by God the judge. And it teaches us the awfulness of sin and the awfulness of hell. What is hell anyway? Well, the old middle-aged theologians said that hell is comprised of the punishment of separation and the punishment of sin. S-E-N-S-E. The punishment of deprivation and the punishment of sin. And they're both found in Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me, that's one, the accursed, into everlasting fire, that's the other. Depart from me, separation. My God, my God, why hast thou departed from me? Abandoned. When God the judge abandoned, so to speak, God the Savior because of the bearing of the penal consequences of our sin. And you remember the response of the watchers, he cries for Elijah, let's hear if he'll come. And then the sun rises and we have three quick sayings and we'll have to close. What was that fifth saying? He mourned the sin's guilt, the guilt of the, uh, of the world. And now that he was through, he cries out, I thirst, I thirst, I thirst. So they put something on a sponge and they put it in the mouth of Jesus to assuage that thirst. His voice and his throat was probably cracking by now. And he wanted to say something more. So they assuaged his voice and softened the cracking of the throat by giving him something to drink. I thirst. Actually, he didn't ask for anything. He made a statement of fact. I thirst. And they gave him something to drink. The soldiers soaked the sponge in a cheap form of what they called at that time wine and gave it to him. And Jesus now drank it. The suffering was over. And he wants to be heard. And then he says very quickly what I consider the greatest word in the Bible. I sometimes preach on the greatest word in the Bible. It's translated by three English words. It is finished. But it's one Greek word, tetelestai. Tetelestai. It is finished. It's the perfect tense. 
It stands finished. Or we would get a better idea, but we just use the word done. Done. Finished. Done. Whatever Jesus came to do in order to save us was done. Finished. And it was done and finished before he died, died physically at the cross. Before he expired, he said, it's finished. So whatever was necessary to save my soul and yours was accomplished before he expired upon the cross. It is finished. You notice, by the way, he didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. What is the it? Well, the it is the it of Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The it is the it of 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God hath made him to be sin. He knew no sin. It is the it of 1 Peter 2, 24. Whose own self bear our sins in his own body. The it of it is finished is the it of Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto you, but to minister and to give his life a ransom price in the place of many. That's the it. And Jesus paid it, as the old song says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. You know that word tetelestai was a common word. The archaeologists have uncovered dozens and dozens of tablets, small ones, which this word tetelestai was found. The man went to a store and bought something. We go to Goldsmiths today and buy something and pay for it. They have a stamp, paid in full. Well, they didn't read English in those days. So they didn't put paid in full. They had a stamp, and that stamp said, to tell us die, paid in full, to tell us die. Jesus stepped up to God's counter at Calvary and picked up all the wages of sin. All the indebtedness of sin, your debt and mine. And he paid it infinitely, paid it in full. And when he finished, he said, What? Done. Finished. So all I have to do now is to receive him. I can't add my good works. I can't add my baptism. I can't add sacraments. Can't add anything. All I can do is come and receive what God has done. Dr. Ironside used to say there are only two religions in this world. Now, the latest yearbook says there are over 300 denominations and religions in America. Dr. Ironside used to say there are only two. And there are only two letters different between these two. One spells itself D-O, do. The other spells itself D-O-N-E. Done. It is finished. Finished. So we speak of the finished work of Christ. And then the Lord Jesus said immediately after that, Father, into thy hands, Luke chapter 23, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he commended his spirit to God and he died. Matthew chapter 27, 50 says that he bowed his head, said, Father, lifted up his head. Father, into I, of course he couldn't lift up his hands, lifted up his head. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Then Matthew says he bowed his head, dismissed the spirit, and he died. He died. Death, of course, is the separation of the soul from the body. 
and Jesus' soul was separated from his body. Now, are you listening to me? His soul was separated from his body. His deity was separated from neither. Jesus is both God and man. Perfect God, perfect man. Now, when Jesus died, his soul and his body were separated. And his body went into the grave for a few days. His soul went into the presence of God. But his deity... His divine nature was connected both with his soul and also with his body. That's why his body did not corrupt. The scripture says that his body would not corrupt. And the reason his body saw no corruption is that his deity was associated not only with his soul, but with his body. Now, you don't think, I'm sure you don't, that when Jesus died, not only did his soul and his body separate, but his deity went away and left both of them. Not at all. Not at all. His deity was connected with both of them, both with his soul and also with his body. And therefore, his body saw no corruption. His body went into the grave for a few days, and his soul did not go down to purgatory did not go down to hell. His soul went in the presence of God. Today shalt thou be with me, paradise. And he went into the presence of God. Now you can read the rest of them. I didn't plan to cover five, six, seven, and eight. We've covered what I intend to cover. Let me close by saying this. Will you please not fold the papers Listen very carefully. Here's the greatest event in human history. You had to select the greatest event in human history. Why, I suppose any Christian faced with that question, faced with that decision, without any hesitation, would select the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a great book written many, many years ago by a select group of historians. The book was entitled, I F if, if. What if Caesar not crossed the Rubicon? What if the Persian has not lost the Battle of Salamis Bay? Perhaps our New Testament written in Persian. What if the South had not lost the Civil War? If, if, the ifs of history. What if we selected the greatest event in human history? Well, to me, there'd be no if. The greatest event in human history is this event when Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, gave himself for sinners. This is the great central event of human history. And may I suggest that there's a magnificent restraint, a magnificent restraint on the part of the gospel writers describing the death of Christ. What can we say about the way of conclusion? Well, I want to say, was going to say three things. I want to say just one. Obviously, the death of Jesus is the focus of all Old Testament prophecies and types. Matter of fact, there are 32 prophecies of the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the 24 hours surrounding the death, the rest of the trials, and the death of Christ. 
Obviously, it's the focus of the Old Testament. More than that, the death of Jesus is the heart of the gospel, especially those words, it is finished. But what I want to point out in conclusion is this. I think it's extremely important that every Christian understand the distinction between the crucifixion and the atonement. The crucifixion is what men did to Jesus. The atonement is what God did to Jesus Christ. The crucifixion is a tragedy. The atonement is a great victory. Now, they're both inextricably woven together. And perhaps it may be hard at times to separate them. We ought not to because they're woven together. But the crucifixion is what men did to Jesus. The trial, the arrest, the trial, the nails in his hand, the bleeding at the cross, the agony in his face, the sword in his side. That's why the Bible is very reserved about those things. Though art and literature plays them up, the Bible has a holy reserve. Why? Because the Bible recognizes that I'm not saved by the nail print and the sword thrust and the crown of thorns. Those are true, but they're symbols of a deeper reality. I am saved by that great transaction that went on between God the judge and God the Savior. When God himself, against whom I have sinned, that God himself came down and paid the penalty of sin. When the God who pronounced my verdict and sentence stepped out of heaven and paid that sentence in my behalf. When Jesus Christ, because he is infinite, could bear in a finite period of time what all us men and women would bear to an infinite period of time because he's the infinite God. What saves me, what saves my soul and washes me from sin and brings me to heaven is that great event in which the Son of God bore the guilt of my sin outside the city of Jerusalem on the cross of Calvary. That's what saves me. What saves me? Not the crucifixion. That's a tragedy. What saves me? What saves me is the atonement of Christ. What saves me is the propitiation of Christ. What saves me is that Jesus Christ bore my penalty in my place the hands of Almighty God. When I come as a poor guilty sinner and trust him as my Savior, then God takes my case out of the dock of the heaven. I want to tell you, my friend, and I hope you're listening. It's a great day when it dawns upon the soul of a Christian. And most Christians go through a struggle on this. When one day it dawns upon the soul of a Christian that Jesus Christ really paid it all. He finished the work of atonement. I can add nothing to the cross of Christ. I come as a poor, humble sinner, and God saves me. 
and he doesn't save me on the basis of what I can do, and he doesn't save me on the basis of the strength of my faith, because I may have many talents. He saves me on the basis of the blood of Christ and through faith in the right object, and that's Jesus. A little crack under the door, a little sun can get in. Window thrown up a great deal of sun gets in. But whether it's a little crack or a whole window, the sun gets in. So whether the faith be small and weak, or whether it be great and large, if it's faith in Christ, not in the church, or not in the baptismal waters, or not in the creed, but in Christ, then Jesus Christ saves me, saves me forever. The reason is, is because his work is finished. Now, I ask you in closing, are you resting on that? What a tragedy to be to speak about the greatest event of human history and for you to walk out without doing anything about it. Have you responded? Have you responded? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior? The Philippian jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas said, Believe on the Lord. Believe upon. Cast yourself upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Have you cast yourself? I'm not asking if you've been baptized. Not asking you read the Bible and pray. Not asking you join the church. Not even asking if you're a preacher like I am. That won't save you. Have you cast yourself? Yourself, <clears throat> with your sin, failure, darkness of your you cast yourself upon the all-sufficient Savior to save you. You've done that, that God saved you once and for all, never to be repeated, takes your case out of the dock of heaven because heaven doesn't believe in double jeopardy and saves you forever. The question is, have you done it? Or as the old poet said, what will you do with Jesus? Neutral, you cannot be. Someday your soul will be asking, what will he do with me? Next week, the resurrection.